So this week's Changing Minds programme is focusing on well-being and well-being economics. We're used to economies being measured in terms of their GDP, and the higher the GDP, it said, the bigger the economy, and to some extent the more successful the economy. But GDP isn't very good at measuring the impact of our economic activity on the planet. It's not very good at telling us what we need to do to combat climate change. And it doesn't really tell us anything about the well-being of our populations. And increasingly, economists, politicians at government level and local authority level are looking at well-being economics. Scotland, Iceland and New Zealand established a network of well-being economy governments to challenge the acceptance of GDP as the ultimate measure of a country's success. We have two short talks. One is by Shona Robison, MSP who talks about how Scottish Government are exploring how to incorporate well-being values into higher-level policy decision-making. Shona's talk is called A Tale of Two Futures, and I'll leave it to you to imagine what those two futures might be. And that's followed by a talk by Gordon McIntyre Kemp of Believe in Scotland. And Gordon takes us through the polling evidence and research evidence he has that wellbeing economics has significant support in the Scottish population across all parties. Those two talks happened at an event organised by the Sidlaw branch of SNP and we finish off the programme with some questions and answers from that meeting. Wellbeing economics is going to be really important for Scotland as we move forward as an independent nation. So next speaker, of course, is Shona Robinson, um, MSP in Dundee. Um, she obviously used to be health minister and now she's heading up the Social Justice and Fairness Commission, which is really, I think for me, speed, speedheading these ideas and trying to kind of raise those issues across Scotland and see if we can find um, some kind of tangible structure towards these um, um, I'm also going to say as well, I found out quite recently that Shona, when she was health minister, was 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 responsible for setting up the electronic system um, that we're, that we're now kind of using in the COVID. Um, so I think Shona's forward thinking in terms of how we use the health service probably helped a lot um, in the COVID pandemic because we've all moved into electronic, especially for the NHS. Shona, over to you. Thanks uh, for, your, for your kind remarks. Also, uh, thanks to, to Beth. Um, a lot of what Beth says uh, chimes very much with the, the work that the Commission has been undertaking. Um, a couple other plugs. Siobhan mentioned uh, the Citizens' Assembly. I can also recommend the, the Social Renewal Advisory Board report that's uh, come out. It has, again, a lot of very kind of similar recommendations. It's also about how we make those decisions. And I'd like to think moving forward uh, into uh, an independent Scotland that we have far more of that citizen involvement um, in the decision making. And that requires us to look quite, quite hard at some of our decision making structures. And uh, I would certainly welcome further discussion on devolving decision making even further. And the Commission touches on that in what we call a, a basically a, a democratic renewal, changing how we make decisions. I'm not going to, we're going to be publishing in the next few weeks, so I'll kind of touch on 
broad areas, but I might not go into kind of every detail um, because uh, we'll, we've got to sign some of this off yet. But broadly, our report has looked very much, and our work and our consultation has looked very much at the, the well-being economy and how we would build that. Um, and I guess what we mean by that is that moving away from you know, measuring GDP as a, a sign of success of an economy to other measurements that look more on how much money we put into well-being, the state of our nation's mental health, the, how many children we have in poverty and how many children we've lifted out of poverty, so that we measure a broader range of, of things that really truly reflect who's benefiting from uh, our economic policies and um, we're already we've seen uh, governments in New Zealand and Iceland uh, move towards those well-being economic models and New Zealand getting uh, you know, for the first nation to have a, a well-being budget in 2019 and Iceland uh, is, is putting similar steps in place to do that so it's not something that's a sort of pie in the sky that hasn't been done. It is actually uh, being done and interestingly being done by two uh, relatively small independent nations. Uh, and that might tell us a lot about what you can do when you have uh, the ability to, to be progressive and think outside the box. So I think we have a, an opportunity to build on some of the very positive policies we have here in Scotland to look at a future based on well-being and inclusive growth so that everybody's benefiting um, from the economic policy of the nation. Uh, so we're looking as a commission of you know, advocating really that Scotland pursues an economic agenda with well-being uh, at its heart. The First Minister has already given very supportive statements of that direction of travel and I think as we move out of the pandemic, as has been said it was by Beth earlier, that we need to think differently. Doing more of the same isn't really going to cut it as we uh, attempt to recover our economies going forward. So there are things we will need to have a serious look at doing with devolved powers as well. But without a doubt, um, having only half of the tools in the box is not going to be able to deliver the optimum uh, well-being economy that we could um, achieve with independence. And of course, there are other policies from elsewhere, i.e. Westminster, that are work actively working against Scotland's move in that direction, not least uh, Brexit, with all of the, um, the, the costs um, an isolationist policy uh, that is not going to do um, our economy any good and is certainly not going to further uh, any moves towards a well-being economic model. I can also recommend the well, looking at some of the stuff from the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, uh, which is a, a collaboration of organisations across the world who are promoting well-being economies in a variety of Forms that talking about having a, having fairness and participation and dignity at the heart 
of whatever well-being economic model a country uh, takes forward. And that is essentially ensuring everyone has enough to live comfortably, safe, happy lives. It's not just about um, subsisting, it's about being able to have a quality uh, of life, but also with an eye on uh, the, the environment. So working to ensure a safe, natural world for us to, to live in. Um, and making sure that we have justice at the heart and reduce the gap between the richest and poorest. And as I was talking about early, earlier, actively engage citizens in uh, the decision-making process. So all of these, I think, are signatures of uh, a well-being economy. Now, in terms of the, the, the detail, um, I think uh, there's a lot of pillars of of that, that model, you can do it in different ways. We have been looking as a commission around um, some key elements. So firstly, we take a human rights approach and that is that we have to make sure that uh, we have um, equality at the heart of the decisions uh, that we are making, um, that we have inclusive, inclusive citizenship, so that we want a Scotland that is uh, open, um, that's not closed for business, that welcomes people who have got a contribution to make, uh, that uh, Scotland will welcome them to come and, and uh, make their, their lives here. So some kind of fundamental principles that kind of underpin uh, who we are and the type of society that we want to see. Within the, 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 the pillars that the Commission have looked at, because we couldn't look at every single policy, so we've taken uh, and prioritised what we believe are the key pillars. So we've looked at um, climate change and a just, just, just transition to an economy that doesn't continue to ruin the planet. Um, we look at taxing wealth and looking at a basket of taxes that recognise, for example, um, the fact that uh, the ownership of land is, is important. Um, so we need a basket of taxes that are able to spread the burden of taxation wider than is currently spread. We look at community wealth building and building on the, the I guess, the fabric of communities that has been so obvious during the pandemic what we've seen is people really rallying within their community and that volunteering effort we really want to harness that we look at a secure income and how we can achieve that so we look at a minimum income guarantee as well as universal basic income which we have to be honest will take time to deliver because you really need a fundamental uh, shift and change of the tax and benefits system. So we look at some shorter term measures that would uh, be able to help those who are in the de de deepest poverty. We look at the fair work agenda because our working practices have changed and we need to make sure we don't go back to some of the old working practices that uh, didn't benefit people, particularly those with caring responsibilities. We look at building homes and communities. I was very struck, well, struck by what Beth said about uh, housing first being an important model when we refer to the need for um, homes to be not just places where you live, but as part of a community with community fabric and safety and uh, feeling part of something um, and, and a secure home is part of that. And of course, that brings in planning and land. How do we make sure we can deliver that affordable housing? All of these things are interlinked. And then finally, the other key pillar is a caring society. So we talk about investing in childhood, uh, tackling our 
problems with uh, drugs and addiction and the reforming of social care so that we have um, we see care not as a burden, but actually as an investment that has a return on well-being, but also an economic return. Because for every pound we invest in care, we create jobs, we create security, and we improve the lives of so many who benefit from uh, from having a, a, a good quality uh, care system. So we touch on that as well. So I hope I've given you a flavour of the breadth of what we're looking at. And I guess, you know, fundamentally, we want to paint a picture for people about um, a tale of two futures. The first being more of the same of Westminster decisions, like, you know, refusing to commit to keeping the, you know, the, the £20 additional universal credit, you know, really mean-spirited policies harming those who can, you know, who are the most vulnerable in our society. That's one future that we just continue with more of that. Or a tale of the second future that we could have where we take control over our own affairs through being a normal, independent country. And then we have a range of choices to make. And what we'll be saying is this isn't a manifesto as such that the Commission is putting forward, but really a series of policies that governments can adopt, because we think these are the best policies that could uh, close the poverty gap, gap and deliver a well-being economy. But at the end of the day, there are political choices that governments um, can choose to make. But our vision is these are the opportunities that we could have uh, with the full powers of independence. So I hope I've given you a flavour and I hope when the report is published in the next few weeks that you can give us some feedback. Happy to speak to people again once it's in the public domain and, you know, happy to uh, to hear your, your, your thoughts on it. Hopefully it will be a, a welcome addition to what we need to make a positive debate about our future here in Scotland. Thank you. So next up is, is Gordon. Yeah, so thank you very much for uh, inviting me to come along. Uh, can I just ask first, though, a wee sort of uh, survey, if you like, uh, how many of you, uh, and you can just do a, a, a sort of thumbs up if you've not got your video on or a, or a, or a thumbs up if you have, if you know what I mean. Uh, how many of you would uh, would say that your economic sort of positioning was uh, said central, uh, not not left, not right, but more sort of in the middle? Anybody? One or two. How many of you would say that you were slightly right of centre, that that we basically need businesses to grow and the economy to grow in order to pay taxes, in order to afford social uh, protections? Slightly right of centre. Not right wing. I'm not asking you that. Nobody's gone for slightly right. I, said, I was even going like, just a tiny bit, just a tiny bit. Nope, nobody's going to go for it. Uh, how many of you would say you are uh, left of centre? Okay, so probably about 70% left of centre. Um, well, actually, I'm going to shock you and I'm going to tell you that uh, I think you're all wrong. Uh, <laughs> uh, the reason I think you're all wrong is because for many years, I have always thought I was strange. I always thought I was nuts because I was quite extreme on the left in terms of social protections and quite extreme on the right in terms of how we run businesses. And I could never understand how everybody else seemed to fit nice and neatly into these boxes. And now that I run a research company, I've found out that nobody fits into these boxes. It just doesn't work. Um, everybody has a sort of Jekyll and Hyde on this. Um, and every time I talk to a socialist, uh, somebody who says, I am a socialist, I give them an example of a friend of mine who 
uh, came from Dremoyne and he got himself, uh, finished school without any qualifications, got himself a, a plumbing uh, apprenticeship. And then uh, after years of doing his apprenticeship and working for a building company, set out on his own, thought nobody else is doing apprenticeships and now he only hires for his company from young people and unemployed people, trains them up, gets them on apprenticeship schemes, doesn't make as much money as other people, etc. But now he's got two holiday homes and a couple of Mercedes and he's actually quite wealthy. And I don't know anyone who actually thinks that he shouldn't, a good guy like that, who's giving back to the community and sponsors local football teams, all that sort of stuff. But he's a businessman. You could say he's a capitalist even. And I think that that's a, a key learning for me recently is that it's actually backed up by a poll done by Conservative Home website. They actually polled over a thousand Tory voters and asked them for their views on social protections and their views on uh, business. And they found out that your average Conservative voter is also a split personality. And what they came to the conclusion was that Everybody who votes Conservative right now, but 90% of people who are voting Conservative right now are just lending their votes to the Conservative Party because they felt that something right-wing needed to be done. But those same people, if they see social protection failing, if they see society breaking down, a lot of them, enough to create a majority for the left, will switch and lend their votes to the left. And so this bulk of people who are slightly left the slightly right of centre and the middle, which makes up 55 to 60% of the electorate, are always lending their votes one way or the other. And these left or right wing boxes are just tribes that they're trying to get you in to stop you being a swing voter. They're trying to get politicians have invented this idea so that you will not switch sides when something their plans don't work. So what I say to everybody is be completely flexible and understand that you are trying that people are trying to put you in a nice easy box and that kind of like will explain to you why i think that because if you hear about well-being it comes across as a very socialist idea but it's not a socialist idea at all and if you if you talk from the left you talk about the well the, the, talk about well-being from the left you talk about the left-wing side of things but if you're going to talk to somebody who isn't left-wing, you're going to talk to a conservative voter, or you're going to talk to the majority of the people who haven't yet decided to support independence about this, you better not talk from the left, necessarily. Yes, if it's a Labour voter, yeah. But the bulk of the people who could still switch are moderate, middle of the, the box, or slightly to the right. And that's something we've got to take into consideration. So I'm going to share my screen now. And... There we go. So basically, um, you'll know that I run the, the organization, the, the, the business network that's pro-independence business for Scotland, and also that we've recently launched uh, Believe in Scotland, the campaign, uh, which is an organization set up really to support anybody that wants to campaign for independence. Uh, but another organization I have uh, is called Scotianomics, and it's an economic consultancy and risk consultancy and research company. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at well-being as an economic policy, not, not a, a sort of range of nice socialist ideas that we can put the name well-being in, just as we used to put the name progressive on ideas like that, and that's now sort of a dying term, etc. But actually, how do we create a well-being economy? How do we create an economic approach that can be called well-being that actually understands the dynamic of left and right working in harmony?
So we looked at New Zealand, we looked at all of the countries in the, the sort of well-being alliance, et cetera. And we, we, we tried to see who it is that's actually doing well-being properly. And we found out that a lot of what people are talking about is just ticking boxes. Oh, we've done this policy and that policy, and we'll call that well-being. And it didn't really strike us as, as, as the well-being. It was, it was ticking a box by doing one or two policies, as opposed to being a holistic approach to the economic management of a nation. And I think that's what we want to focus in on. Because COVID-19 has changed everything. Lockdown has changed everything. Brexit has changed everything. People are going, ah, the status quo isn't working. We need something new. We need a new approach. They're now open to it. And because there's been a major health crisis, they're more open to well-being than they ever have before. So to explain well-being, and this also the, the sort of squiggle that we've got here, um, this is a Celtic uh, uh, symbol for infinity. But what we wanted to do when we actually came up with this uh, idea of, of, of creating a, a graphic that explained it is that to explain that if blue is the economy and green is society, then you can see that they are completely and utterly interlinked. You every, every single element of society and every element of economy feeds into one another. You don't just give somebody the real living wage because they deserve the real living wage and it will lift them out of poverty. You give them the real living wage and everyone should give them the real living wage or more because 75% of the economy is based on what we spend ourselves personally, not companies, others, people. Uh, things that we spend out of our own back pocket. Right now it's just going to the, the supermarkets, but, but it's really important. So if you actually get people who are engaged in the economy and have enough money to not just feed their family and pay the rent, but then to go and spend extra money, your economy grows exponentially by paying people a fair wage. And that's not what we actually understand right now. So it's not, it's not just a, a socialist thing, it's a socialist and economic business friendly uh, thing as well. So as you can see, society and the economy feed into one another, they're completely interconnected and interlinked. And you cannot have a strong society without a strong economy, and you cannot have a strong economy without a strong society. And the traditional answer to that is to sort of sit in the middle and be try to be everything to everyone, but nothing to everyone, is what say, the Lib Dems managed to do. But instead of thinking of, of left, right, and middle, think of elevated, elevated, enlightened thinking about the economy. And that's what a well-being economic model uh, represents. Now, one of the things that, that Siobhan said was, you know, talk about how it can actually uh, help us win the independence referendum. And I think it's absolutely vital to it. In fact, I'd go as far as to say, I think, unless we actually consider moving whole scale from the economic approach that we're currently looking at, we could still lose. Um, and I, but, but at the end of the day, I think we can win handsomely if we adopt a well-being approach. And well-being isn't something that's new for us. It was actually core to the economics, economic belief system uh, of Business for Scotland when we formed in 2011. So it's been since 2011, 10 years now, that we have been championing this approach. Uh, we were the first, possibly still the only business network in Scotland uh, at our AGM with 100% vote, about 150 people at our AGM, 100% vote that we should back the real living wage. Uh, and uh, we made it a case that if you wanted to be a member, you had to actually do that. I don't think any other business networks considered that. So here's a headline from the National uh, from last year. 75% of Scots would vote for independence with the right economic case. And if you think about the economic case that could be put forward by 
either the Conservatives or by the SNP, then one is going to be left and the other is going to be right. So you can't actually get that 75% because they think it's a different thing. They think it's either a left-wing case or a right-wing case. And, you know, they aren't, so people sort of look at that 75% and say, well, it can't ever be achieved, but it can. Because every single one of those people in that 75% figure is willing to say yes to an economic approach based on well-being. And this is where we get it into some sort of level of context here. This is a piece of work by Progress Scotland. You actually see that our increase, I'm just doing a quick bit of math here because I haven't added it up. So I think we're on 54% there or something. Um, uh, but what you see is that, that they have, or the unionists have as many hardcore voters as we do. We just have more soft voters. And that's, you know, really got to put that in our heads. It doesn't matter if we get the 58%, in the polls, a lot of that 58% are not as committed as we are. They're not dedicated yesers and they could swing either way. And that's why we've got to protect ourselves with a, a better, uh, more progressive economic policy than we've currently got, one that appeals to everyone. If you're interested in reading more, there's on our website, there is a, um, a poll that we've done of a thousand people in Scotland. And actually I'm gonna take you through a few details. Now you can go to the scotianomics.org uh, website uh, and you can download the report. I'll put the uh, link in the chat later on. Um, so basically here's a couple of things. Just, I'm going to run through just very quickly a couple of the, the things we found. Uh, first of all, quality of life, equality, fairness, happiness and health are all economic outcomes that should be given equal weight to economic growth. So here's a question we ask people. We measure GDP, we talk about the success of the economy based on GDP, but actually all of these, what's known as softer measures, I dis disagree with that terminology, they're not softer, uh, they're maybe smarter, uh, measures should be given equal weight to GDP. And 78% of respondents in Scotland said yes to that. That is a fundamental shift from where we would have been 10 years ago. Uh, I almost wish I'd done asked this question 10 years ago and could absolutely prove that, but that is my gut feel. As an economist and working in Scottish economics for, well, I wrote my first economics uh, uh, article for a newspaper in 96. Uh, so in my experience, I was shocked to find that we had such acceptance of quite a left-wing, if you like, policy statement. So let's take a look at the age groups. And this is where it becomes incredibly interesting. When we break it down, we find that the group and this happens throughout all of our research. The group that is even more uh, pro a well-being approach to economics than everybody else is the 55 plus. And the older it gets, the higher that number gets. So retired people want to see uh, a well-being approach to economics. They possibly understand that they would benefit from it more, as much as anybody or more than everybody else. But the age group that is least open to independence is most open to this economic approach. And I think that's a really key finding for us. Um, you cannot have a thriving economy without a thriving society, and you cannot have a thriving society without a thriving economy. This is the statement, the overarching statement that links everything together, that, that, that points out that it's not left and right, it's actually one thing, two sides of the same coin. And 72% uh, agreed with that. And the one thing I'd like to point out is that undecideds were 22%. So actually, we're talking less than nine or less than six percent. So ninety-four percent did not say that did not actually match my beliefs. 
So if you take the undecided and you split them both ways, you're into the 80s on most of these core questions. I've never seen, in all the research I've ever done or read, I've never seen uh, move towards a sort of political positioning like this. It appeals to absolutely everybody. So how do I prove that it appeals to absolutely everybody? Look at this core question, this, the, the, the core well-being belief question, and you'll find that conservative respondents and Lib Dem respondents came out top. So people in the Conservative Party, 78% of Conservative voters and 78% of Lib Dems agreed that you can't have a thriving economy without a thriving society. You can't have a thriving society without a thriving economy. Now, we talk about conservatives and Lib Dems, etc. They're, they're just people who have, in the 2019 election, lent their votes in Scotland to the Conservatives. 78% of them are keener on that core concept of well-being than the SNP at 71%. We didn't poll the Greens, there wasn't enough people standing in 2019's general election uh, for the Greens to actually get a representative sample. But I think that's, that's again, a core finding. So if you go uh, into independence referendum two with a well-being approach to economics, it's well thought through, not just a few tick boxes, socialist ideas, let's build more houses, let's do that, just what liberties always say, but they never deliver, but actually demonstrate how it all works together and drives the economy forward, creates more equal better quality growth that is wider shared amongst society, then you will actually bring on Conservatives and Lib Dems. In fact, it's the only thing that brings on Conservatives and Lib Dems and older people to the, to the case. Last couple of, uh, of quick graphs. So you can get all of these. There's maybe another 30, 40 graphs you can look at in the report. Uh, if we build society and our economy more successfully after uh, coronavirus, we can create a new economic approach that will allow both our economy and the society to thrive and be more resilient in the face of economic crisis. Again, only 11% thought, no, no, not, we can't do that. And not 11% are the hardcore, uh, possibly, conservatives uh, that are looking to, uh, as Shona point out, pointed out. Uh, in fact, actually, I'm, I was going to agree with Shona, I'm going to disagree with Shona. I don't think we have a choice of going for a well-being economy or having more of the same. I think we have a choice of a well-being economy or going in completely the wrong direction. Westminster is going in the wrong direction. They're going to start taking away workers' rights. Human, they're going to attack human rights. They're going to, you know, the, the CBI is lobbying right now uh, for the uh, the government's living wage, not the real living wage, but the government's living wage and the minimum wage to be reduced uh, in order to allow businesses to be more competitive. Are you kidding me? If we reduce the wages anymore, there'll be no economy to be competitive in. And that's what they don't seem to understand. But again, 69% uh, agreed with that. Let's split that across. If you actually look, about, look at that, you might think, ah, it's only 52% of conservatives, but it's in the 70s. So you see the Lib De Lib Liberal Democrats don't have that drop when it comes to something, a statement along those lines about building back better uh, and, how, and allowing our society to thrive and be more resilient. But let's just consider that 52%. There's 26% undecided. And when you normally present the data, say in a political poll, you would split the undecideds. Um, so again, we're well into the 70s there if you were to actually take the undecideds out. But, and I think this is the key thing, if you take the undecideds out, yes, support, even when it's at 55, 56%, isn't as high as 52% or when you have the undecideds in there, I should say. So when you count the undecideds, the yes, no's and the undecideds, 
that 52% is a substantial majority, even amongst conservatives. So you can see there's a route here to bringing over a lot of people to independence if we get the economic approach right. Um, ending poverty and equality and unfairness while increasing the minimum wage and job security will boost the economy. So specifically increasing the minimum wage will, will, will create job security and boost the economy. Again, uh, 80, 80, yeah, fair enough, but big majorities amongst conservative Lib Dems as well. So basically, how does this work as an economic measure? Well, instead of having, like I say, a tick box here and there, or a few policies and saying dressing up and calling it well-being, you've got to actually have well-being embedded in every single economic plan that the government makes. And to do that, you've got to be able to measure it. And uh, this was from 2017. I did a comparison of uh, a well-being uh, comparison, if you like, between um, Denmark and the UK. Uh, and what we found is that uh, well-being is a, as a, as a sort of um, well-being of people, uh, healthcare, etc. cetera. Uh, we found that Denmark outperformed the UK significantly on welfare and personal security, significantly on society, significantly on renewal. Uh, and that is a lot of investing in young people and also investing in research and development. Uh, it uh, significantly outperformed the UK and an internationalization outperformed the UK, but obviously now the UK is probably at zero uh, until they manage to hire another 10,000 customs officers. If you think, ah, but the, the UK's natural resources and sustainability uh, beat Denmark's, that's Scotland. That's not the UK, that's Scotland. So if Scotland becomes independent, those figures are going to drop right back there. And you'll see that other than economic growth, uh, the UK doesn't beat Denmark on anything in a well-being uh, grid, if you like. Um, however, there's a problem here that if I'm right, then why is economic growth higher in the UK than Denmark? Well, actually, this is 2017. And I, um, as a result of all of these other factors being better uh, and of the value of Scottish natural resources dropping a little bit with the price, although it has recovered now, uh, Denmark has now actually overtaken uh, the UK and the economic growth as well. So basically that hexagon is what you're looking for to maximize it all the way around uh, and a right-wing society that is that doesn't understand uh, the core of well-being will, will never manage to achieve that and will not have a society that completely feeds, that is completely interactive between society and the economy, one feeding the other. Um, final thing to say is it's not just, uh, uh, here's a grid, let's just tick all these boxes and make make uh, uh, make sure that everyone says that there's a couple of sentences in the end of every policy that talks about well-being or adding the, let's count how many times well-being is mentioned in the, in the policy documents. It actually allows you to start with a blank sheet of paper. And here's a policy document that we came up with, which basically uh, states that we should first of all, get benefit cooperation tax uh, devolved to us, but then we can actually change it and make it a well-being policy. So the way that this, currently the UK government is moving uh, cooperation tax from 20% down to 17%, uh, I think it is, um, and it's talked about going a lot lower as well, uh, maybe to 15%. Um, and what we say is don't, don't do any cuts whatsoever, leave it at 20%. And the business people would, would freak at this point, but then we say, but if your cooperation is of a benefit to our well-being agenda, then we're going to give you tax credits. So if you hire people from unemployment, if you have lots of young people, if you give apprenticeships, if you have gender 
balance on your board. If you increase your exporting, like the difficult to do right now as a percentage of your company's turnover, if you invest uh, uh, more than 4% of your company's turnover on research and development, and if you pay the real living wage, etc., if you do all of those things, then we'll give you benefit corporation tax credits, and each one of those will take your corporation tax below the UK's slashed corporation tax rate. So you end up with a lower corporation tax in the well-being economy. Why? Because all the other things they're doing are growing our economy exponentially compared to the struggling UKs. It's bringing in new revenues, it's creating new jobs, people are spending money because they've got more money to spend, and it pays for itself by growing the economy. And so that's how you not only measure the economy, but how you actually take your economic uh, policies and rejig every single, or fundamentally redesign every single one of them to being a well-being policy. So there you go. That's the economics of well-being from our point of view. Just checking everyone's still awake. <laughs> I think we're, we're, we're minds blown by that. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's, there's some amazing food for thought there, isn't there, in terms of how we take that and then start building that argument for independence. It, I mean, this might be overly simplistic, but it struck me when you were talking about this, that it allows us a way to speak to those who do consider themselves on the left as well as those that consider themselves on the right, because we can we have a moral case for this, but there's also a very, very strong economic case as well. The idea of the tax cuts for kind of socially aware companies is something I think that the Citizens Assembly agreed on as well. They were they were looking for something similar and it's that same kind of basis too. Has anybody got any questions or comments? Hi everyone and um, thanks for having us speaking and for having me. Um, yeah I wanted to tie in uh, with the equality uh, issues that have come up and um, I think applying a, a gendered lens to any economic structure is really helpful. We know that since 2008, women have made up a huge proportion of self-employed businesses, very tiny micro businesses, and these have possibly been ones that have been worst affected in the pandemic. Um, Shona, Gordon, do you want to pick up on Jules's point? Yeah, um, Jules, just to reassure you, Angela O'Hagan sits on the commission, so everything we've done has been looked through a gendered lens, and Angela uh, reminds us um, every turn that we need to do that. And the, the caring section of our report, um, which really fits well with the, the um, support for a national care service that Derek Feely's... Um, you group came out with last week talks about a number of kind of fundamentals obviously it's a mainly female workforce that isn't paid very well does a hugely stressful job and isn't a isn't a um a, an area of the economy that is valued in the way it should be now we need to use i guess the the experience of the pandemic to change all of that and you can you have to do that through a number of ways to you know you have in terms of terms and conditions, um, that has to be completely overhauled. And I think a national care service could be a good mechanism to deliver a, a kind of national standard of terms and conditions. Um, it commits to things like uh, a job 
evaluation to make sure people's skills are being recognized. There needs to be clear career progression. <clears throat> opportunities all of that and that's kind of one sector of of the economy that you know we've put a, a gender lens on but there are many others as well and I think to move to a well-being economy we have to recognize that there are areas of the economy and workforce that are predominantly women and you know that goes hand in hand with um, often poor quality uh, poor pay um, and um, you know, um, a, a kind of low, low esteem for for that sector. So we have to change that, and you'll like what we have to say about the, the the care economy. And I think looking at it from a point of view of investment, um, you know, whether you get a higher return on investing in the care economy than you would on infrastructure, for example, in terms of pounds back for every pound invested. So. We've got to make these arguments and in the same way as childcare has seen a massive uh, investment both in the workforce and in facilities, we need to see that for the care economy. So I, I hope you'll you'll like what, we, what we've said about that. We've also said things like on the, the issue of housing, there are big links to homelessness and domestic violence. So again, we're making those links um, about how do you make sure that um, it's predominantly women and their children can remain living in a house instead of the ones that become homeless due to domestic violence. So we've got there's a, quite a lot of thought from a gender perspective that's gone into the report, and hopefully you'll you'll uh, appreciate that when you see it. Gordon, very quickly, um, yeah. In terms of a well-being economy, I talked about it uh, being an enlightened approach not left or right, not the centre, but enlightened to higher purpose. And if you're going to have an approach uh, that is enlightened, that, that is, uh, seeks to deliver a higher purpose, then there's no room for the isms. There's no room for sexism, for racism or for sectarianism. They have to be wiped out completely of our society in order to make a well-being approach work. You can't say, oh, we're having a well-being approach, but we'll, you know, we don't, we'll just turn a blind eye to um, sexism or or racism or something like that. So yeah, absolutely, uh, everything has to be looked at through a gendered lens. Um, let me give you an example of uh, the book uh, that I wrote, uh, well, pu published last year. Uh, Scotland Brief talks about the key sectors of Scotland's economy. Uh, and I got a bit of flack because I put the unpaid sector in as one of Scotland's key sectors. Uh, and everybody was sort of going, well, that's not really a thing, you know, the unpaid, you know. It, it absolutely is because it employs an awful lot of people and the vast majority of them, about 80% are female. Um, and therefore, uh, if, you're, if you're a true economist, you can't just look at the male economy and think this is how we will rebuild because that's the problem. That's the reason we need to rebuild is because we've had to uh, mail an economy uh, as it is. Um, but you know, you have to look at the whole sector and everything is interconnected and there can't be any, uh, any sexism in there at all. It's very, very quickly, basic income. Uh, one of the questions, if you look at the report we asked, is do you support a basic income? And it was one of the lowest response rates that we got. And uh, basic income was one of the least popular ideas of the well-being agenda, but it is one of them, mm. uh, absolutely. And I think that the time is gonna come when we're gonna need to have a basic income because there's just not gonna be jobs uh, for people. Now, the reason that it isn't the most popular is because most people haven't been able to answer the question, how do you afford it? 
Uh, and, you know, so first of all, of all, I would suggest that there are many great ideas that might fit within the wellbeing agenda that we need to say, and we're going to have a commission on that. And we're going to look at this. We're going to properly investigate it. It's not been investigated properly. You cannot test a universal basic income by having 250 unemployed people in a Swedish village uh, get paid basic income. That's not a test. We've got to convince New Zealand or Iceland or the Faroes to do it. And then once the whole country's done it with the UN saying, don't worry, if it screws up your economy, we'll give you loads of money. Then we can test it. Uh, or we just have to believe in it. And if our economy is growing significantly and is growing with good growth, not bad growth, bad growth, you can, you can grow your economy um, 20% over four years and you think, wow, that's the fastest growth we've had ever. But if all of the profit of that growth goes to shareholders, then it's bad growth and it doesn't necessarily grow the real economy. It doesn't lay a foundation. You're gonna end up, that's called a bubble, which is gonna crash. And so you've got to have good growth in order to have uh, uh, an economy that is actually sustainable. And also, you've got and one thing I haven't mentioned at all yet. You've got to make absolutely sure there is an ism. It's called environmentalism, and it's absolutely core to the well-being approach. Uh, and you know, if you if you grow your economy at the cost of the environment, then your economy is destined for collapse. Um, question for Gordon, is one of the reasons the UK is stuck in a rut, is it because of the two-party system enabled by the first-past-the-post system? The Holyrood system is not perfect, but it is likely to provide a more considerate government. Yeah, uh, proportional. We have a more proportionate government. Uh, the system is not it's anything but perfect, uh, but I'm a great believer in it. Yes, it does allow a wider representation if it's done properly. Ours is not as good as many European nations. Um, but yeah, that's the thing. I mean, the, the UK, the reason that politicians in the UK will not vote for proportional representation is because they've comfortably got everybody in the nice little boxes. And, you know, they're trying to get everyone to be part of their tribe. Um, and the trouble is that people become much more dedicated to their tribe during hard times. Uh, if they believe that the Conservatives and the Conservative approach is the only way to grow the economy out of the trouble we're in, they get you know, more extreme and exactly the same on the socialist side. And we had Jeremy Corbyn uh, looking at that. And what's, what's happened all over the world recently is that, that the economy collapsed in 2008 and it's still collapsing. It's still not recovered. It's like a dead man walking. And um, the, the issue is that people sort of realise that every government in the world governs from the centre because that's what first past the post kind of does to a lot of organizations a lot of countries is that that you in order to get the most amount of votes just get the most floating voters you've got to govern from the center so all the political elites were governing from the center and therefore the center failed when the economy failed they realized that they didn't know what they're doing so who's left you've got to go to the extreme right or the extreme left and some people like greece went to the i don't like the word extreme left went left and america and the uk went right uh, and that's what's happening so as those fail, now we're going to start going back to the centre again. And people will think that's success. No, it's not. It's going to where the problem started. We've got to have a new system, a new approach. And that's where the wellbeing approach takes over. Brilliant. Catherine, Nerek. How much work does Scotia, Econo um, Econ Scotia Nomics do uh, for the Scottish Government at the moment? We don't do any work for the Scottish Government. What we do is, so for instance, we have two consulting clients this uh, this month. 
who we're writing reports for. Uh, and I say we have somebody uh, doing some analysis in Africa uh, right now for us, uh, uh, development work. Uh, we have we turn user profits to investigate things like well-being. And then I have actually had an hour Zoom with um, Kate and another with Fiona, uh, the economics and finance ministers, uh, presenting uh, our, our findings to them. Uh, and so we don't do work for them. Uh, they, they don't give us any money uh, and we haven't sought any money or government contracts. I think that would be an excellent opportunity. This should be an excellent opportunity for you guys to get together with the Scottish government. Um, as far as I can see, the Scottish government have a well-being policy at their heart all the time. You just have to look at the Joseph Rowntree uh, statistics from last year for child poverty and household poverty and how um, Scotland is, you know, for child poverty, 6%. Uh, better than the rest of the UK. So I feel the Scottish government already implement um, uh, the, the well-being economy. But I feel that if you guys were working in tandem, you know, this could have gone so much further. Jim? If, if I could ask a question more as a campaigner than anything else. Um, when it comes to building a narrative uh, regarding well-being, uh, how do we avoid it just seeing, just becoming like being nice? It was always a, a thing that was uh, thought of between left and right, that the left were nice and the, the right were uh, good with money, but, but were nasty. Um, neither of which are particularly true, but how do we set about building a narrative to speak to people without uh, overloading them with lots of numbers and, and figures and, and so on? Gordon, perhaps. Oh. Well, um, I was going to go for Shona since Gordon's spoken yeah. a lot, but <laughs> I tend to. Um, well, uh, just a couple of thoughts from from me on that. I think some of the language Gordon used on the slides essentially were questions to uh, to um, the, the the public in terms of their support for concepts like you know you you can't have a thriving economy without a thriving society things that are simple concepts but actually very deep in the fact that essentially what we're talking about there is a well-being economy but translated into simple concepts you know do you agree with that and the figures that gordon uh, showed showed that actually people um of all persuasions um, gravitate to concepts that are about fairness. Everybody likes to think that they're they're fair, um, and therefore relate to concepts which I guess um, kind of you know speak fairness back to them. So you know the figures um, I thought were very interesting, and that's got me thinking about uh, how we frame the debate and try to get those undecideds on independence, supporting independence, those, some of those very simple concepts. Well, if you agree with that, that you can't have a thriving economy without a thriving society, and that's what you aspire to having, then independence is the best way of delivering that, because only through independence can we have a well-being economy that delivers exactly that. So we have to just complete that circle of kind of thought for people and make it um, uh, you know, simple. Um, one idea that we've built on is, is also to use, as Catherine pointed out, some of the, 
the good things that the Scottish government has been able to do with um, the limited powers that they have. So um, if you, you know, the Scottish government only has control over 15% of social security, and yet, despite that, has managed to bring in groundbreaking policies like the Scottish Child Payment, which will help to tackle child poverty, and actually things like uh, infant mortality, for example, are lower in Scotland because of some of the early years policies that have been brought in. And what we need to do is to say, look what we've been able to do uh, with the limited powers we have. Imagine how much more we could do with the other 85% of Social Security responsibility. So to kind of build on the, the platform of, you know, if you like this, and most people do like that, then we can have more of that because we would have the, the, the full powers to deliver more of that type of policy. So we, we have to boil down, uh, I think, lots, you know, we could talk, we could talk big numbers and I think that gets lost on people sometimes and all they hear are big numbers. And we have to try um, and move this kind of your too wee, too poor debate from that nonsense to look at the opportunity here but also look at the opportunity cost if you go down that other route. That's the other vision. Um, so, you know, the status quo has risks and dangers for you because that's where we're going to end up. Whereas this other vision um, won't be kind of, you know, motherhood and apple pie. And we have to avoid pretending it will be motherhood and apple pie. We have to be honest with people. There'll be difficult decisions to be made, priorities, choices, but there'll be our choices and we hope that we'll make better ones. So, yeah, just going back to that point uh, that Catherine made and, and, and Jim as well, in terms of working with the Scottish government, um, we do have conversations, we do lobby, but we're very much lobbying from the outside. Uh, this, we tried to work through the Sustainable Growth Commission, but absolutely nothing we suggested to the Sustainable Growth Commission with a wellbeing slant was included. Uh, and I think that regardless of whether you agreed with the, the Growth Commission when it came out or not, uh, and a lot of my friends, good friends, were involved in, 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 in putting that together, regardless of whether you agreed with that or not, uh, the health crisis has moved the situation forward. It is now out of date. We need to look at how we build back better. I know the Tories have tried to steal that. They, they'll, be, they'll be launching a website called Believe in Scotland next. But, you know, the, the, we've got to actually think about how do we build back better? How do we build resilience and well-being and healthiness and happiness into an economic approach, into a combined interlinked economic approach? And that's what we need to do next. And Shona's right. We need to compare and contrast. And actually, JERS shows Scotland's finances as part of the UK. We then need Scotland's finances as projected with a full well-being economic approach published at the same time to compare where we think we would go if we left the standard uh, approach of the of the UK behind. That was promised to me in a meeting with um, a former finance minister. It never happened. Uh, and I think it needs to happen now before the next referendum. We cannot go into the next referendum uh, with jars being thrown back in our face because it has no relevance to an independent Scotland. And if we have the Sustainable Growth Commission, which is based on uh, accepting many of the flaws of JERS, um, then we could lose. We need to re-engineer our economic approach 
on a well-being approach that people can buy into. We need to show them the economics of reasonable hope rather than unreasonable austerity. Valentine, finally, darling. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> Gordon, actually, what you've done is raise the, the, the point, the very point that I was wanting to make, because I've got great concerns in that I don't think enough is done to sell Scotland to people in terms of people are always asking, what's my pension going to be? How, what's pay going to be like? You know, what they're really concerned about how are they going to afford to live in a future Scotland? Now, all they want to know are the basics. You know, what's it going to be like? What's their standard of, of living going to be like? You know, I mean, I, I, a well-being society, I've, I've, I truly believe in a well-being society. There's, you know, I'm all for that. I've, I've always been all for that. But people on the ground, people want to know what that feels like, what that sounds like. They want to know about, okay, not the exact money in their pocket, but is it going to be better? Now, I know that it's going to be better because I know that Scotland, you know, wouldn't let them down, but they need to know just exactly what you've said. They need to have a projection given to them. And why the hell is that not happening? That needs to happen before the next referendum, basically. So please, can it happen? SNP government, please. And Gordon McIntyre Kemp, can you get working with them now, please? Shona, I think that's for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Valentine, yeah, you, you're, you're right um, to a point. However, let's be under no illusion. Even if we had every I dotted, every T crossed, every question answered as we think it needs to be answered, our unionist opponents will tell, still tell, tell pensioners that they're going to lose their pension. And these are facts that we need to reiterate, simple facts that, you know, people can go and live in Spain. Well, they used to be able to until we you know, pulled out the European Union, which is, you know, another matter. But anyway, you can go and live anywhere in the world and you still get your pension because you've paid into your pension. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, we need to also make the point that if if the survival or the viability of a country is all about its national debt, deficit and borrowing, then the UK is a busted flush because the national debt, borrowing and deficit of the UK, as is at the moment, you know, would make them completely unviable by those standards. So, you know, we have to try to frame the terms of the debate away from the these litmus tests, if you like, are about, you know, what, what's the deficit of that? Well, you know, every single country in the world has borrowed to its back teeth to pay for, you know, the cost of the pandemic. So we are in a different territory and Scotland will, you know, have the same challenges in that respect as every other country does. But the way it comes out of it will be, the tools will be at our disposal. So, you know, the way out for us can be, building that fairer uh, economy that takes everybody with us. 
and protects and looks after those who you know are, are more vulnerable and are, are older people in a way that the UK is not going to do in the trajectory it's on. So we have to reframe the debate a little bit. Otherwise, we'll find ourselves back in, you know, these kind of sterile debates set by our unionist opponents about, you know, what's Scotland's deficit? Well, let's talk about the UK's deficit. That's not where the debate lies. It's about what, how we, like every other nation, how we find our way forward out of this. Um, so, you know, we have to absolutely... Um, try to, to reframe and be and, and tell a positive story about these will be decisions for us in terms of where we invest, where we don't invest and priorities that we make that will be different from uh, the priorities set elsewhere. So I hope and I, I know these things are being worked on, although bear in mind, you know, the resources of the Scottish government have been totally focused on dealing with this public health crisis. Um, and it is important that we use the skills and talents of people like Gordon and others who have got these kind of um, more like visionary ideas. And you know, we have to recognize that perhaps some of the, the debates that we had previously, things have moved on and we have to recognize that. And I certainly am arguing that as others are, that we need to kind of reset some of, of those debates. Gordon, and then Beth, if you want to come in. Can I, just, can I quickly answer Shona though, because it's not about that though. People don't want to know, punters don't want to know about deficits and things. We're talking about quite basic things here that we could talk to people about. That's all I'm saying, you know? Gordon, mm -hmm. do you want to? Yeah, uh, so basically um, I, I agree with you, uh, Valentine people need to know how it affects them. In fact, that is one of the core truths of all political campaigns. Uh, Business for Scotland tried to make the case, the economic case for independence last time round, and we had one hand tied behind our back. Um, uh, and I think that it's the worst this time going forward. So what people want is a balance sheet. They want to see what the finances really are if you're outside of the UK. They want some sort of projection on that. Um, most people want to believe that would be okay. They're just not seeing something. And I totally get why we use JERS. JERS, and I, and I totally disagree with Richard Murphy on uh, JERS being crap data. It's the best data we've got, and the Scottish government has to create its economic policy based on the best data it's got. So calling it crap data doesn't actually help at all. In fact, it rebounds. Uh, my view is that we can use that data, that information we've got, and we can mould a different approach, and we can then project what that different approach will generate, and we can create uh, a far better balance sheet to show people based on our projections of a well-being economy. And this is the beauty of the well-being approach, is that every single uh, idea within the well-being economic approach is being already implemented somewhere. It's a bit like uh, uh, when you take the, the sort of baby box, you can point that the baby box has been successful in Finland. You could, you could point that uh, a housing policy is working in New Zealand, etc. And so it's the whole thing, you might think, well, nobody's ever done a full holistic well-being approach, but every single policy is tried and tested. Unlike MMT, when no country in the world is using it, modern monetary policy, no country in the world is using it as it's been projected, no opposition party in the world is suggesting using it as it's projected, therefore 
it would be a bit of a going out on a limb. This isn't going out on a limb. This is test, tried and tested policies. So yeah, and you take each of those areas on that hexagon that I pointed out, and you have a key, popular, sensible policy on each area that people can read and then go, ah, I understand what this is all about. For example, one that the Scottish uh, National Party's um, uh, conference voted for was to set up, set up a commission to look into raising pensions to the uh, EU average, which would include about doubling them, uh, basically. I think that is a core element of the well-being approach. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, Shona, I have the stats on what that does to old age pensioners' uh, intentions to vote for independence. But with all of these things, if you, it adds about 5% to our vote. But anyway, the, the thing is that all of these things depend on them actually believing you can afford to do it. So in India F1, if we'd said, we're going to double people's pensions, they'd have gone, that'll bankrupt us. And they wouldn't have believed it. So first of all, before you make any economic policies, you've got to sell them on the concept of how we're going to be able to afford them. And the well-being approach that tried and tested works. And if we can go down the well-being approach, the older people buy into it. And then we say, oh, by the way, There'll be a staged increase in your pensions over a series of time until we manage to somehow get to the EU average. They'll go, I'll buy that. That's the sort of country I want to live in. Christian had said something earlier on um, that I've not quite read out, and it kind of ties in with quite a, a lot that what Gordon's been saying and also what Shona's been saying as well about that concept of moving in two different directions, one through the UK way and one through the, the Scottish wellbeing way. And he says here, this is most Europeans agree on the wellbeing policy. Also, the European Greens, particularly the biggest section of the German Greens, have understood how much we rely on the economy and business for this. Merci, Christian. That fits in exactly what you were just saying there, Gordon, about that idea that these things are tried and tested. We're not plucking these out thin air. And also, I think, Shona, it really balances for me that, that kind of, here's your two options now. Sarah, um. I'm coming to you, I promise. Here you go. Sarah, ask your question. Put last said her hand up for about an hour. <laughs> and Gordon, um, I coming back onto the corporate tax, um, you did actually struck me on something in which uh about like the lowering of the corporate tax will actually damage the whole idea of well-being. And it reminds me of the time in in Dublin, um, they're only surviving because they're in the EU. Um is because their corporate tax is 12% and they have a housing crisis. Do you think that this will act, you know, if the CBI, CIB or CBI have their way and Tories did that by lowering the corporate tax, would that actually have that result on us? Gordon, you want to pick up on the next question that Sarah asked? Uh, yeah, so um, yeah, simply cutting uh, corporation tax and creating a race to the bottom doesn't work. It kind of worked for Ireland a little bit because they wanted to uh, massively increase inward investment and that was particularly what that was about. Um, and it gave them an advantage. There is a slight problem in that their gross value add, which is the real genuine uh, uh, value of their economy because that's the money that's created in the actual country and doesn't actually end up going to foreign as profits to foreign companies declared another stock exchanges etc uh, is much lower than their actual economy so uh, their economy is is larger it's been booming uh, it's had i think 22 percent growth uh, over the last few years um 
uh, and so it worked, but it's a short-term uh, uh, shot in the arm for an economy that was coming out of the financial crisis. Uh, and its, its economy is growing much, much more quickly for the last eight years than the UK's uh, overall. Um, but a race to the bottom in the UK is just going to uh, starve taxes. Uh, there is uh, you know, corporation tax uh, as well as something that is very easily avoided. Uh, and it doesn't matter how much you cut. If you're paying 11%, it's still 11% more than zero. Uh, so I don't think it does any good at all. But if you say, okay, as an independent Scotland, we're going to close all those tax loopholes, but we're going to be able to, we're going to give you, if you're a benefit to our country, uh, we're going to give you uh, tax credits, then it will actually pay for itself by uh, reducing things such as uh, all the benefits, the universal credits, etc., cetera, uh, because people will have more money and won't be able to claim those or will, will need to claim those things. But the other thing is that although you're maybe only uh, paying a few pounds uh, per, per, per hour extra to people who were not on the living wage, that, that money multiplies because the speed of money in an economy is what actually makes it work. It's the turnover. Because if you have more money and you say, well, I can now afford to have a coffee and you go into the coffee shop, the, the, not necessarily the chain, but the local and coffee shop and you get a coffee and a cake and that profit then goes to hire uh, somebody to, to, to serve you that coffee and that person then goes and pays the tuition fees, et cetera. And every time that profit moves around the economy, it increases what's known as the speed of money, the exchange of money in the economy. And that is what creates growth. Um, and you don't get that if you cut taxes and cut spending and don't have people paid enough. But in terms of Ireland, I think uh, Ireland's population is 4.8 million, which is 600,000 less than ours. Our last set of JERS accounts came up with, I think, 179 billion GDP, uh, with 600,000 more people than Ireland. Uh, and Ireland's GDP was 291 billion. So they are over 100 billion bigger economy than Scotland with half a million, which is a big percentage uh, of a small country's population, less people. Uh, you know, you've got to ask, how did that happen? How, how, does, how does a country like Ireland have so much better wealth and double our pension, um, uh, you know, if they have fewer people and none of our assets. They don't have our, our whiskey exports. They have a food industry that's not quite up to scratch with ours. Uh, they don't have our oil and gas reserves or natural wealth. Uh, and they've got a water crossing before they can reach uh, the UK market uh, as well. So, you know, I think they've had a housing crisis. Yeah, that's bad housing policy. But overall, Ireland's economy is booming, but it's not necessarily the model we would follow for a well-being approach. Okay. Um, just uh, Kaiser asked a question earlier on and he's asked me because he's got to go. So he's asked me to ask it now. Um, and that's for everybody. Uh, what impact uh, would Scotland's own currency, passport and border control have on well-being? Who wants to go first? <laughs> no, just, I've been talking too much. I was just going to something else to go first. Shona? Well, I mean, I, I guess... We need to make sure that we have an orderly, orderly transition to independence. So the currency policy is based on being able to do that. So retaining sterling and then setting up our own uh, currency. So 
I mean, these unfortunately are going to be the arguments that our unionist opponents try to scare the horses with that somehow, you know, Scotland uniquely in the world is not going to be able to, you know, have a, a viable currency. Um, for me, currency actually isn't the, the issue. <laughs> it's, it's what you do with it and what you spend it on and how you generate it, uh, whatever it is. Um, but that is uh, the SNP's position in terms of an orderly transition. And I think that's right, because you want stability. Uh, in terms of border controls, um, uh, every country has some, um, to some extent, has border controls. So obviously within the EU, you had the, the travel arrangements, uh, which we now sit outside. We have common travel arrangements, the islands with I Ireland. Uh, I suspect what we would want to have is a similar common travel arrangement around uh, these islands um, um, with uh, the rest of the UK and Ireland. We would want to maintain those. Um, and, you know, if we were to regain entry into the EU, which is obviously our position to want to do so, then we would have the, um, the, 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 the travel arrangements within the EU um, that have existed until we left. In terms of beyond the EU, um, I mean, our, I think our position is very much, you know, you, you need to have, obviously you need to have um, control over um, illicit goods, drugs coming into your, your, uh, your borders. So uh, customs uh, control is important. And in fact, the UK is pretty poor at doing that, um, not least around Scottish waters. So from that point of view, you would probably want to uh, do more around the, the security uh, against organised crime, for example. Um, and although if you're talking, Kaiser, about what our immigration and asylum seeking policy would be, then uh, you know, that would be based on essentially a fair point system that would enable people to come to Scotland uh, with the, the kind of skills that would be required. And we would want uh, to, to have people come and uh, as I mentioned earlier, to build our lives and uh, contribute to building our economy uh, rather than giving out the message that, you know, we're not open for anybody. Um, so, yeah, I think those are, that's the kind of flavour of, and I think that does, if you, you can translate that into being about fairness and justice, which would be very much part of a vision of a kind of well-being society where people are welcomed um, and you, um, you know, if they if they want to come here and help build uh, a prosperous country. First of all, on currency, uh, there's a lot of people wandering around saying that if you don't have your own currency, you're not an independent nation. That's absolute nonsense. Uh, all the countries of the EU zone, the eurozone, are independent nations. Now, if some other country tells you you can't have your own currency, you're not independent. But if you decide yourself not to have your own currency, you're independent because you made that choice. You've exercised your sovereignty. So the Scottish government's approach is one of many options that would actually work uh, in terms of currency. In terms of uh, border controls and passports, there's, there's a couple of things. First of all, there is, actually isn't any uh, really detailed stats on trade between Scotland and England that just doesn't exist in any way that I could put my name to a report that says this is what it is. Uh, there's some experimental data and I totally disagree with it and it doesn't understand 
the the role of uh, online financial transactions and 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 what that actually means. And what we do know is that Scotland is the only nation of the United Kingdom to have a persistent uh, trade surplus in goods, not in necessarily financial services, etc. And a lot of people say, ah, but you don't have, you've got a deficit in financial services. Well, yeah, but I've got a mortgage with the Nationwide Building Society, and that's a, a financial service that's provided to me by someone from England. Therefore, that's considered to be an import. Well, after independence, the nationwide just going to have to have a brass plate somewhere in Scotland and assign my my mortgage to it, and it changes everything. Uh, it it becomes a supply to me by somebody in Scotland. So we have no way of knowing what the trade uh, right now is uh, in terms of financial services. In terms of uh, of goods, though, uh, because of our food, because of our oil and gas, and because of our whiskey, uh, we are best placed to have well over a uh, hundred billion pounds worth, a hundred million pounds. 100 billion pounds worth of uh, uh, of, uh, of of exports uh, going forward. In terms of uh, the, uh, the the level of the currency, and Sean is right, it's what you do with it. If we uh, launch our own currency, we come out of the UK, or we sterlingize, which isn't my favourite idea. Um, I think we should launch our own currency straight away, but we're going to have to match. The, uh, the value of the pound, because if we come out of the pound, the pound is going to sink. It's going to sink like a stone. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, the UK is going to look at Europe and it's going to say, ah, right, we want to buy something that we could buy from Scotland, but we're going to buy it from Europe. Uh, well, there's, there's going to be the tariffs, etc. And then there's the currency on top of that. If, if the euro is now 10% more expensive uh, to buy from, then their goods are 10% more expensive than ours. So we need to go down with them. We can't have a strong currency in an independent Scotland. It has to go down with the pound so that they can't afford to buy from anybody except us. So regardless of whether there's a hard border, regardless of any extra tariffs or anything along those lines, everyone else will have those, but we will have a currency that's the same low value as the UK's if we launch your own currency. Um, there are multiple options that could work. I think that launching your own currency and pegging it to the pound is the way to go. Uh, it has problems. There is no... There is no perfect answer there. Um, and so, yeah, finally, in terms of uh, borders, I think that we may well take two to three years, or maybe as much as long as four years, to actually get back into the EU. In 2014, we said we'd be the remaining nation. That was an argument that could have been made. I don't know if it would have been the case or not, but it was an argument that was a, a valid argument. Now, the UK has taken us out already. We have to reapply. And although we have gold-plated every single standard, EU standard, uh, they all have to be tested, and that means that there's going to have to be people doing investigations, etc. And therefore, it's not going to be that simple to get into the EU. It would be, and I've spoken to senior economic advisors to EFTA um, uh, prime ministers who have told me that we'd be more than welcome into EFTA and the European Economic Area. So there may be a way to actually get the benefits of accessing the European market earlier without necessarily the problems or the inflexibility of being part of the EU and dealing with the UK as it suddenly, as it, as it sort of figures out what it needs to do next in terms of its borders. Brilliant. Um, I am blown away by this talk. I think it's, it's I've got about a million ideas kind of swimming in my head now. Um, I think Beth, Shona, Gordon, thank you so much. That's been really, really fascinating actually. Um, and I think that you all kind of brought a completely different perspective that
that all together kind of presents something really quite brilliant. And I think we could all use some of this stuff as we move forward and, and campaign now. Um, so thank you so much for your time for coming. And then I thought of radio.